Welcome to Building a Greener Idaho, your source for insightful conversations with diverse voices at the intersection of people, profit, and planet. Welcome to Building a Greener Idaho. I'm your host this week, Remington Byer. With me in studio is Brandon Lee, Consul General of the Government of Canada in Seattle uh, for the Pacific Northwest region. Welcome to Building a Greener Idaho, Brandon. Thanks, Remington. Pleasure to be here. Great to have you here. Brandon, we're going to talk about uh, Canada, the United States, international relations, bilateral relations, and just cultural connections between Idaho and and uh, Western Canada, the Pacific Northwest. And I'd be remiss if I didn't revisit uh, an audio clip that I recently discovered of Prime Minister Trudeau that I'd like to share with our audience this morning. Indeed, a question which some of your Canadian newspaper colleagues are now beginning to ask about my government is whether our ideas are capable of implementation. Well, it's a valid question. Imaginative and original approaches to problem solving are always welcome, but they must be practical, and even more important, they must be effective. But first, let me say that it should not be surprising that if these policies, in many instances, either reflect or take into account the proximity of the United States. Living next to you is in some ways like sleeping with an elephant. No matter how friendly or even tempered is the beast, if I can call it that, one is affected by every twitch and grunt. (laughs) How relevant are Prime Minister Trudeau's words today in 2018? That's a great question. And in fact, uh, what we just heard was uh, the, the first Prime Minister Trudeau, uh, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, and uh, as you know, now his son, uh, uh, Justin Trudeau, is the Prime Minister. And in fact, um, just a few weeks ago, Justin Trudeau uh, made an, uh, worked off of those remarks that his father had made, and, and he has updated them to say that actually um, being next door to the U.S. is like uh, being a moose uh, in bed with, a, with an elephant. Uh, a moose is perhaps a little more... Uh, strong and confident than a mouse, uh, but definitely still far outweighed uh, when compared to an elephant. Yeah, those words that we heard were Pierre Trudeau addressing the White House correspondent or, or U.S. press club uh, back in the 60s, the late 60s. So fast forward 50 years, our relationship or the relationship between Canada and the United States is perhaps as uh, consistent and resilient as ever. Absolutely. And in fact, there are no two countries in the world that have a closer tie than Canada and the U.S. Uh, You know, we often refer to ourselves as friends, partners, and allies. Of course, militarily allies, we collaborate at all levels from uh, NORAD to NATO. Um, And then partners, I think we'll talk a little bit about trade, but of course it's the uh, largest trading partnership in the world. Uh, and then, but most importantly, is is the friends aspect. I think, where where you know, you're a prime example as a Canadian living here. Shh. <laughs> and, and you know, we have uh, in any event I've been to, if you ask how many Canadians are in the room, a, a number of hands go up. And then, if you ask how many have relatives or friends or, or have spent time in Canada, it's it's you know, the majority of the rooms hands go up. So. Uh, I think that friends aspect is, is quite important as well. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Building Our Greener Idaho, your weekly public affairs program here on 
Radio Boise, bringing you conversations at the intersection of people, planet, and profit. This week, we are revisiting a cultural conversation we started last year during Tree Fort 2017, when Canada had a big presence at Tree Fort to celebrate the 150th birthday of the founding of Canada from 1867 to 2017. So we're going to call this 2.0 Canada. And my guest today is Brandon Lee, the Consul General uh, for the Government of Canada in the Pacific Northwest region, representing Washington, Oregon, Alaska, and Idaho. Brandon, how enjoyable, stressful, difficult is it to represent the Government of Canada these days? It's a great honor to represent our country. And and Canada's position and presence in the world uh, is now more important than it has ever been. I think Canada enjoys... Uh, probably the highest visibility it's ever had in the history of Canada, our impacts on the world around climate change, uh, environmental stewardship, more important than ever. So the role of government is more important than ever as well. Brennan, you recently uh, came to the Pacific Northwest region. Of course, last year our conversation was with James Hill. Uh, What happened to him? Was he defenestrated by Prime Minister Trudeau? (laughs) Not at all. So so when you're in... uh, our positions, you know, we're all heads of missions, and, and a mission can be, actually our title and the name of a mission changes based on where it's located. So if it's in a capital city, then we're called ambassadors with embassies and so on. So when you're in a major city, it's, it's a consulate general, and I'm a consul general, but all heads of missions were, were politically appointed. Uh, so we serve at the pleasure of our prime minister uh, through order and council. And so w- with the NAFTA negotiations, you know, there's a, a little bit of a mu- musical chairs in the U.S. And I think I read that James may have been uh, transported to sunnier climes. Absolutely. He is now our ambassador in Costa Rica. All right. So once you are consul general, there's a, a step up to the ambassadorship. So <laughs> Absolutely. Hopefully we have a chance to converse with you uh, in the not-too-distant future, but I'm glad that we could get you in here today. Real pleasure to be here. In coming to Seattle, though, uh, to the Pacific Northwest, you came kind of circuitously from, I heard, uh, Europe, Switzerland, perhaps, and even prior to that, then connecting back to Canada, you're from Ontario? That's right, that's right. So, so my, if we just step backwards, uh, just before coming here, I was actually Canada's Consul General to California and Hawaii, based in San Francisco. So I was our ambassador to the Silicon Valley. Um, but then before that, you're right, I was in uh, Geneva, Switzerland, where uh, my background, uh, myself, so I was born in Toronto, um, and my background is actually as a tech entrepreneur. Um, And I had a number of of companies, and when I uh, exited those companies, I was asked to help reform and bring some private sector uh, experience into the government. Mm. Um, And so I thought I'd give it a year or two, and it's been 15 years, and it's the most rewarding and challenging experience I've ever had in my life. Um, and, uh, yeah, and I have lots of stories to tell on that side if you're interested. Well, we're actually going to dive into some of those tech connections here in the conversation, but I got to ask, in having come up to the Northwest then from California, um, let's talk about Western identity somewhat. So um, what is it, what are some remarks or observations that you might have to share about representing Canada and the Pacific Northwest and how that might be the same or different than representing Canada, let's say, in the Bay Area or Northern California? I think uh, we're referred to as the Canadian Mafia because there are so many Canadians in the Bay Area. Uh, but then coming up to the Pacific Northwest, I actually feel the demarcation in that 
the culture is even more Canadian, if, if it can be possible. You know, California Bay Area, it's the, the Silicon Valley ethos is really strong and present. But from Portland on up, uh, you know, the, the, the linkages to the West Coast, as you, as you say, it's, it's like being in Vancouver. It's like being on the wet in Calgary. Uh, the, the similarities are just striking. Yeah, I'm reminded of that film from the late 90s, uh, Wesley Snipes and Chris Christopherson in, uh, was it Blade? Was that the name of it? Blade was the vampire hunter because he was half vampire, half daywalker, and he could hide amongst them. And, I mean, in many respects, I feel like Canadians have that same superpower when they walk, particularly in the north of the United States. Definitely. And there's to add to this, uh, we can often smell each other out, but, but, but I, w- Americans have trouble finding us, so, so it's a, a definite superpower that we hold. Fantastic. So let's talk a little bit about the economics then. So in, you mentioned in the Bay Area, there's a lot of Canadians involved in the uh, information technology, uh, the startup scene down there. Here in Idaho, we like to talk about uh, the big names. I guess Micron and HP aren't really startups per se, but um, we, we now have accelerators and incubators and, and a growing tech scene here. But we like to talk about uh, perhaps even agricultural startups or, or other types of startups what are some reflections that you've seen on how Canada and the United States, or perhaps how Western Canada and the Pacific Northwest can look to Im- strengthen our relationship by focusing beyond just tech and, and looking to grow our economies, the new economy in 2018? Mm, in fact, your, your comments are quite insightful because I, I think uh, until the last few years, people have looked at tech scene and tech startups um, and have separated them into ICT uh, as a silo. But in fact, what we're seeing with tech is that it's pervading all sectors and all industries. There's no, no sector or no business that won't be touched by tech. So, so terms like big data, artificial intelligence, machine learning, these will cut across all platforms and, in fact, infiltrate all sectors. So during my time in Silicon Valley in San Francisco, um, all of the major cities and provinces and, of course, federally across Canada have come because uh, uh, I guess Silicon Valley is, is the, the mecca, the, the center of the world for tech. Um, and when we're looking at how to build a tech ecosystem, maybe just quickly to, to your question is, I think sectoral strengths, hi- uh, highlighting sectoral strengths is the key. And in fact, agriculture are one of the sectors that may seem less sexy than, than something like uh, uh, um, virtual reality. But in fact, ag tech or agricultural technologies has probably one of the strongest business values and, and business outcomes possible. You know, a few percentage points in efficiency for a farmer with a big operation can result in tremendous gains. Yeah, and here in Idaho, we recognize daily that, particularly in, in southern Idaho, this is a desert. And the desert was made to bloom by bringing water, by reclaiming the land, building reservoirs, digging canals, laterals, ditches, and irrigating. And arguably, um, from the time of Mesopotamia, the, one of the first technologies was agricultural technology. And, and so it's good to hear that Canada is looking for improving those linkages and opportunities to strengthen the, the startup, the tech, the ag scene in the Northwest. Um, I want to kind of touch on culture, because that's something that's really important to us here at Radio Boise. 
we're familiar, no doubt, with Neil Young, Joni Mitchell, um, and these days, more so Margaret Atwood and Malcolm Gladwell, Canadian cultural icons that came down, uh, hid amongst our American friends. There's a lot of bridges that get built, not only by Canadians coming down to the States, but by Americans going up to Canada as well. Uh, And even Prime Minister Justin Trudeau today seems to have inherited his father's capacity to to really uh, see past um, the current perturbations and and wrinkles in our relationship and try to smooth out um, what is arguably, as you put it, uh, one of the most important and stable relationships between any two nations. So uh, tell us a little bit about how you've been working to strengthen relationships between Canada and the United States and how important is it for not only for yourself, but cultural ambassadors, musicians, musicians and artists at Treefort uh, mm-hmm. and, and beyond Treefort coming down and, and going beyond um, talking points and creating those linkages and relationships. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, it's, it's a great subject and a great question. Um, I guess immediately, if, if we speak immediately and then bigger picture, uh, immediately uh, Justin Trudeau and the, the current uh, federal government in Canada, they have put a, a big priority on uh, supporting and exporting Canadian talent, uh, creative and artistic and musical talent. Um, we actually see it as, as an export industry where uh, we believe... Canadian talent is is world class, um, and we've seen it with the with the groups that you had mentioned, and we think that uh, continuing to support these artists uh, is helping to get Canada's brand and Canada's name out there. Um, and we have you know uh, really leading edge. We have 16 artists at Treefort this year, which is probably the the highest number we've ever had, and, and I think that'll only continue to grow. So the Canadian message, the Canadian artists are really resonating. Uh, in every uh, country and export industry that we're looking at. Let's talk a little bit about technological economic development, which I know is something that you're passionate about. So there were uh, a number of Idahoans down at Tree Fort uh, and tuning into this broadcast, no doubt, who are directly and indirectly tied to the, the knowledge economy, the information communications technology, the ICT economy. Um, there was even... A session at Hackfort with a local tech company, Vinyl, and they were talking about initial coin offerings, ICOs, and how to understand blockchain technology and, as you put it, the Internet of Things and big data and machine learning and all these these buzzwords, which we're all trying to grasp at. What does it what does it really mean? Um, so, as Consul General in the Pacific Northwest. How are you helping to grow our economies, both here in Idaho and the Pacific Northwest, and also in Canada, uh, to increase investment in technological innovation? I'll take off my tech entrepreneur hat and, and speak as, as a government representative, because I, that's the important job of, of the Consul General in our office. And as a government, governments have a few levers that are very powerful in uh, supporting new technologies. And the two most powerful ones, I would say, are one is uh, the regulatory framework. So around blockchains, fintech, financial technologies, even agricultural or drones, a lot of these technologies require regulatory approval, legislative changes. And so uh, things like 
allowing fintech ICOs, you know, blockchain companies, to operate under the financial regulatory framework for one or two years just to test their technology because if they were to be exposed to it from day one, they probably wouldn't be able to survive. So, so those kind of uh, opportunities only government can offer uh, startups. Mm-hmm. And the second one, of course, is funding. Uh, and, and in Canada, we are different than the U.S. in that the Canadian governments at all levels, federal, provincial, and municipal, support startups. In the U.S., I think it's much more uh, capitalistic and companies are uh, have to fend for themselves. But in Canada, you know, between 15 to 35 percent of all R&D costs for a startup can be recouped in tax incentives uh, from the government. Oh, really? So we play a, a very large role in Canada, actually. You know, that's an interesting point to bring up. Uh, reflecting on how the the mantra of Silicon Valley can sometimes be said to move fast and break things and, and you know, fail forward. Um, government isn't given that luxury and, and arguably shouldn't be given that luxury because when governments fail, there are consequences to it. And um, you put it as this, this regulatory environment uh, can be a positive for fledgling startups. And I think about, uh, you know, just recently there was news about a self-driving car, an autonomous vehicle that uh, was unable to... Uh, handle a scenario that resulted in a fatality. And there are also um, fintech investments that could open up or expose investors to unforeseen consequences of, of, a, of a financial vehicle mechanism that is less than transparent or, or a little bit too volatile. And so I think in the United States right now, there's, I don't want to call it a, an emerging awareness, but perhaps uh, increasing acknowledgement and support for this notion that free markets can be good, um, but a regulated, a well-regulated market is also something that people can get behind and understand and be supportive of. What are some of the ways that you think that government can perhaps continue to innovate or help increase, grow the size of the economy, make the pie bigger, and, and provide private economic development through stewardship and leadership from the government? Absolutely. And in fact, uh, I have a second hat uh, where, where I'm the, uh, one of the senior um, digital strategists for the Canadian government uh, for global affairs globally. Um, and, and your question is one that I think all governments around the world are, are grappling to, to address. We're just at the beginning of this digital economy, uh, uh, if you will, and progress is not guaranteed. Human progress is not guaranteed. In fact, you know, uh, since we've gone to the moon, we haven't gone to the moon again, and, and you know, uh, risk averseness can come into play. And, and even your example around self-driving cars, you know, it was, it was only a matter of time before the first fatality was to happen. But I, I think as government, we have to look at the, the larger picture. For example, okay, there was one fatality with self-driving cars, but look at how many fatalities of human-driven cars mm-hmm. there are every hour. Um, and so, so to leverage this technology in a way that benefits the masses, because the government has a unique position, a, a private sector, they need to increase revenue, increase customers and clients. Governments, we don't need to increase actually, we need to manage our citizens and their best interests. So our, our motivation is actually to support our economy, to create uh, a long-term vision for growth 
and not necessarily to 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 uh, destabilize or adopt technologies as fast as possible so in that way maybe a slow second mentality where we learn but and we keep ahead of the curve but we're not leading as you say because governments we don't have the the luxury of uh, fail forward fast if you can elaborate for our listeners then in your role as the technology strategist the perhaps CTO of Government Affairs Canada, then what, what do you got cooking? What are you uh, envisioning? And how can we continue to grow at a stable rate and stay ahead of the curve? It's a great question. And I think what we're seeing in the news these days around data privacy and the Facebook uh, dramas that are happening now, even the word privacy, I think we should move away from. And we should talk about security. Who do you trust with your data. I think security, cybersecurity, protection of our citizens is fundamental. But then there are things like, I wouldn't be surprised if we start seeing departments of algorithm verification. Hmm. Who is verifying all this m machine learning algorithms? Are these algorithms doing what they, the companies say they're doing? Only government can have the role to verify what this is. And you know that means brand new skill sets. How many algorithm, you know, data scientists do governments have? Very few, if, if any. <laughs> right. So, so, so we're, governments have to rethink themselves. What talent do we need? How are we going to operate? Um, all governments around the world, our budgets are getting smaller, mm -hmm. but we're asked to do more and more things. Policy issues are becoming more and more complex, and our resources are shrinking. So we have to rethink at a fundamental level how governments operate. Well, speaking about how our governments operate, I want to turn now to talk about um, something that Idahoans uh, are curious about. And I'm going to frame this question with a little bit of, of some context here for our listeners. And I don't think I would be speaking at a turn to say on behalf of us Idahoans that we recognize our quality of life is linked to our ability to grow our agricultural semiconductor and technology manufacturing sectors because the potatoes and the microchips and the technology innovations that we develop here um, need markets beyond just the 1.5 million of us that live in the gem state. And as a result, securing access to export markets is essential. There's been a lot of talk here in the United States about free trade and the uh, drawbacks and perhaps the opportunities of free trade, and specifically the Trans-Pacific Partnership and the North American Free Trade Agreement, or the TPP or NAFTA. Canada has recently been a signatory to the new variation of the TPP, the CPTPP. Should America be giving the TPP uh, a second look, and is NAFTA really something that we want to revisit? Mm. Great questions, and maybe I'll, I'll tackle them in reverse order. Okay. Because NAFTA has been uh, probably taking up the, the, the majority of my time since being appointed to this post uh, just over six months ago. And NAFTA is the most successful free trade agreement in, in human history, is, is how we look, like to look at it. Um, the Canada-U.S. relationship is the largest trade relationship in the world, as we said. Canada is actually the U.S.'s biggest customer and client. Wait, there's more trade between Canada and the United States than between the United States and China? Absolutely. And we buy more from the U.S. 
than China, Japan, and the United Kingdom combined. Really, Canada does. Absolutely. That's why we are the number one uh, customer of the U.S. So this is about two billion dollars per day. Just to give you an example, I won't name the country, but a colleague of mine was bragging to me that they their country does six billion dollars a year in trade, and so. Canada, U.S., we do that in about three days. Wow. When Canada looks at trade, our measure is not with surplus and deficits. Um, we look at our total combined competitive uh, position globally. I think that's what is very important. As you had mentioned in Idaho, Canada also, we have, we have a huge country with a lot of land, a lot of resources, and not a huge population. So actually... Canadians understand that we need to trade to survive and actually thrive, uh, which we have been doing. So connecting that to your first question, we've just signed a free trade ag agreement with the EU. And then now, as you mentioned, uh, we've just signed TPP, uh, the new TPP, CPTPP, or TPP 11 minus uh, uh, the U.S., including Idaho. We are the largest trading partner with Idaho as well. And uh, every politician, every elected official, uh, uh, chambers of commerce that we've spoken to in the U.S., they all support and understand the importance of NAFTA and trade agreements. A lot of Idahoans who understand that their, their way of life, their quality of life is tied to the continued health of our export economies get it that, that there's more than one issue at stake here. There, there's more than one talking point to try and address what we understand as being um, issues that we want to work through, but we're not exactly sure on how best to work through them. So if it does come down to a renegotiation of NAFTA, what are some ways that the agreement could be improved upon from the Canadian perspective? Mm. So what Canada is bringing to the table is that we agree that NAFTA is, is, is well over two decades old. So there's room for improvement. There's a lot of room for a win-win-win, a triple win for all three countries. And what we would like to do is make NAFTA the most advanced trade agreement in the world again. And so what we're bringing to the table, are our proposals are updates in uh, uh, IP, e-commerce, uh, um, internet business. Uh, e for example, when, it, when uh, the NAFTA was first signed, Internet wasn't even uh, a reality, and the only job recognized what was engineer. And so there's a lot of room for improvement there. But furthermore, small-medium enterprises. 80% of our business is actually done by small-medium enterprise. So removing red tape so our small-medium business can do more trade together. Uh, and so this resonates very strongly with our agricultural sectors and most sectors where you know, it's not dominated by giant multinationals uh, around Aboriginal rights, gender equality, uh, and environmental protection. Traditionally, free trade agreements, you would never even think about putting these chapters in. Mm. But when you sign a free trade agreement without environment, some of these protections around it, then you're left trying to scramble and trying to influence business that's happening every day with a very weak position. So we're trying to strengthen ourselves from the start and uh, we're mindful of all these other dimensions, like environment and climate change, uh, from the get-go. 
speak about environments and climate change, uh, a lot of Idahoans may not be aware that there is another agreement that is potentially up for discussion or renegotiation between Canada and the United States, and that's the Columbia River Treaty. Uh, Brandon, the Columbia River Treaty, as I understand it, is a treaty between Canada and the United States, or uh, perhaps more specifically between the province of British Columbia and the states of Montana, Idaho, Oregon, and Washington about the management of our shared water resource that is the Columbia River Basin. Is a renegotiation uh, for certain? Um, And what's Canada currently doing with respect to the potential for a Columbia River Treaty renegotiation? It's probably the least known international collaboration and treaty uh, that has been functioning very well over over the decades uh, since it had been signed in 1964. There is not an official renegotiation, actually. The Columbia River Treaty exists and will continue to exist. But what has uh, uh, come into question is that um, around the flood control provision, which when the treaty was signed, that portion of the treaty would be open to discussion by 2024. Um, So we are starting now. Uh, to look at this flood control provision within the Columbia River Treaty. It's really relevant here in Idaho because when Mother Nature wants to send a surprise our way, we can have more water than we need. Many Idahoans, many Boiseans will recall the winter 2017 snowpocalypse when we had flood stage releases through the Boise River for months on end. Part of the reason that the Columbia River Treaty came into being, as you alluded to, in 1964, was the the flooding of the city of Vanport, which doesn't even exist anymore because it got washed off exactly the map. Right. And we haven't had a catastrophic flood event really since. But if we talk about renegotiating the Columbia River Treaty, we are opening ourselves up to perhaps greater volatility of a flood event because we're, we're not going to have that security, the insurance of knowing that in any given year, We've got some flood protection built in. So I think a lot of Idahoans are, are happy and heartened to hear that Canada is not itching for a renegotiation of the treaty, um, but is still open for, as you put it, making it better wherever possible. That's it. And I th- there is some misinformation out there and around something called the Canadian Entitlement. Hmm. And the Canadian Entitlement is where the U.S. and Canada have agreed to share half of the incremental electricity potential generated as part of the Columbia River flow management. Now that's not up for renegotiation. It's the flood, com- con- uh, the flood control payment is what is open for renegotiation. And the flood control payment, as, as you had mentioned, in 1964, the U.S. made a one-time payment to Canada of $64 million at the time. And that's it. So that provision is what expires uh, and requires a 10-year demarcation for the new provisions to come into effect. And then that Canadian entitlement, as you alluded to, is the uh, revenue generated from the increased hydroelectric produced as a result of those more stable flows through the river system, um, which I was just reading the other day about... um, Bitcoin mining, the new mining, and how um, the flows through the central Washington and perhaps parts of Montana, which historically, because of the Canadian entitlement and the flood control 
flows have been stable and allowed those counties to export surplus hydroelectric, they're now looking to have to import electricity or, or to try and find a way to stabilize their electric demand just because of the new technology uh, and, and economies that are coming on the horizon. Absolutely. And I think that w what you mentioned is exactly uh, a result of the, the benefits the Columbia River Treaty have brought. The fact that this region enjoys the lowest electricity rates uh, within, within the U.S. is exactly a result of how constructive and useful this Columbia River Treaty has been. Brennan, we're getting to the end of our conversation. I want to thank you for coming in and speaking to our audience today uh, and sharing your insights about um, being the voice of Canada, the face of Canada, the representative of Canada here in the Pacific Northwest. So th thank you for coming in. Thank you, Remington. It's been a real pleasure, and I look forward to speaking very soon. Thanks for tuning in to Building a Greener Idaho. Keep the conversation going on social media and at buildingagreeneridaho.org. And join us Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Thanks for listening.